Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Dr. Nicole Birkins, who is a holistic child psychologist. As a licensed clinical psychologist with advanced degrees in psychology, education, and nutrition, Dr. Nicole Birkins is the world's leading holistic child psychologist. She has dedicated her 23-plus year career to providing parents with research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so that they can reach their highest potential. She runs a multidisciplinary evaluation and treatment clinic and is a best-selling author, published researcher, award-winning therapist, and experienced mother of four children. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) How old are your kids? My kids are older now. My kids are, my baby's 14, so they are 14, 17, 19, and 21. That's amazing. I, (laughs) I... can't believe it. Life goes by so fast. I have a three-year-old, so uh-huh. I just can't believe how quickly, and I'm pregnant with um, my daughter right now. So congratulations. Uh, Amazing. I remember those days well. I had all four of mine um, in a six-year period of time. And so, um, yeah, each stage of parenthood is busy. I thought I was really busy when they were little and I was. There's a certain type of busy when they're little and then when they start getting bigger and they all have their own activities and all of that, you're busy in a totally different way. And now I've got two off in college. They're all home for the summer, but two off in college and two at home. And so now it's like moving towards that next phase where I just get to celebrate them going off into the world and and being who they're going to be as adults. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm not running around with four kids anymore. So yeah, it's all motherhood is so um, fun and interesting at each different stage for sure. Yeah. And I think that's how I found you. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know, maybe it was through Janet Lansbury. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Janet and I are colleagues and friends. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate her work. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was excited to find out more about you and, and have you on here. And I think the best way to start for us, um, start the conversation is really dive into the difference between your work as a holistic child psychologist and the difference between maybe someone going to any child psychologist that they find maybe through their insurance or whatever. Yeah, there is an important difference. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes people hear the word holistic and they're like, oh, that's sort of like woo-woo or weird. And actually holistic just means taking into account all the different factors that are going on with a person. And so as a traditional psychologist, child psychologist, um, which was how I was trained in my doctoral program for clinical psychology, we're really looking at the mind, we're looking at, you know, um, symptoms at diagnosis, and we're looking at treatments through the lens of psychology only, which can Mm -hmm. offer great insights. And there are great treatment approaches and things that we use within the realm of psychology of helping people to understand their thoughts and feelings, how to manage their behaviors, things like that. But I began to see over time in practice, that while I had a lot of tools Um, There were other things going on with the kids and the young adults that I was seeing. I began to see all of these commonalities of like physical health problems and sleep issues and seeing the impact of screen time and traumas and um, all of these pieces. And I, it got me really interested in 
the integrative health and the physical health end of things and the connection between what's going on in the body and what's going on in the brain. And that really opened up a lot of new avenues then for delving into the research of what's really going on when a child or an adult has something that we might call, you know, a mental health disorder or um, a neurological disability or a developmental disability. Um, And I began to see that really when we just look at it through the lens of psychology or what's going on in the mind, we're missing out on some important pieces. And so as a holistic psychologist, I'm looking at the brain, but I'm looking at the body. I'm looking at what's going on in a person's relationships. I'm looking at them through a spiritual lens, through a physical health lens, through an environmental lens, looking at all of those pieces to say, what's really going on that's showing up then in these symptoms that we might call ADHD or autism or anxiety or mood disorder or behavioral disorders or things like that. So it's really taking more of a full person approach and look at what's happening, which then opens up a lot more avenues for how we address those kinds of things. It's not just sending somebody to talk therapy and maybe, you know, recommending that they get medications. It opens up a whole nother realm of helping them to become healthy in their whole body um, and in every part of their lives. And um, that to me is really exciting and is what gets the best results. I I love that. And I actually, it's so funny. I was um, just with my family doctor and Mm -hmm. he's a DO and it's, I started seeing him about like, um, you know, like seven, eight years ago. And it's so funny. He's just become a therapist essentially. Mm -hmm. And I love that because he's mm-hmm. a functional medicine doctor and really what his whole approach is like, I can see the difference when you do specific therapy or when we do these like programs or uh, mentoring programs that he does, like when he can see it in my blood work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so amazing when you start to show progress because your whole physiology does change. So it makes so much sense that it all goes back to your experiences in life and healing trauma and stress mm-hmm. and all those things. And it all starts with, you know, talk, mm-hmm. whether it's talk therapy or there's just so many different types mm-hmm. of therapy, but, um, and I'm sure we'll get into that, you know, that you do with kids, but I think it's, it's really the basis of it. Every, every aspect of your life makes such a difference in your health and, and your mental health in general. So I think, you know, especially with like what's happened over the last year, as we were kind of starting to get into earlier, um, before we started the podcast, I think, you know, it's been a really wild time and things Mm -hmm. are they are starting to open, but it's still a bit iffy and whether people were like really bunkered down in their homes and scared. And, and that really depends probably on where you lived. If you lived in a dense city and Mm -hmm. it was, you know, probably a lot more terrifying than someone who had a lot more land and lived either in a suburb or somewhere where they could go outside and feel a little bit more free and open. And so their children may not have had the same experience as children that live in a different part of the country Mm -hmm. that, you know, really saw firsthand um, the effects of COVID and everything. So Mm -hmm. I think that's all really interesting. And I, I would love to ask you, I mean, I have so many questions. I also have like personal questions because (laughs) I was like really right before this call, it took us like 
a million years to put clothes on him. I yeah. was like, oh my gosh, I'm always like referring to Janet's mm-hmm. website. But um, in terms of COVID, yeah. like with, I've just heard so many things with masks and how they've affected our children and, and infants even like coming into this world, not having that like facial, um, the same relationship with like expression on our faces and stuff like that. So I'm curious, like, what are the various things that you've seen? And I've even heard like the difference in like prefrontal cortex, like just thinking as Mm -hmm. well. So yeah, I'd love for you to speak on those topics. Yeah. I mean, COVID has been so challenging, um, for, for everybody, no matter what stage of development you're in. Right. And it's hit people in different ways, whether we're talking about infants or toddlers, or we're talking about teenagers or, you know, middle-aged adults, elderly adults, it's hit everybody in, in different ways, depending on the stage of life that they're in. And and I think, you know, in the big picture, I'll, I'll start out with what I think is the good news. And I firmly believe this, that human beings have an incredible capacity for resilience, children, especially, And so I think that in the big picture for the vast majority of kids, um, this will have been a significant thing in their life, but it won't significantly negatively impact them long term. Now, we have some kids who were prone to quite a bit of anxiety and, and those kinds of things before COVID who maybe that has now really ramped up and are going to need access to some specialized treatment to help um, to help with that. But in the big picture, I think that um, most kids are doing well and are going to continue to do well. And that, I think that's the important takeaway message. Now, there's some things within that, right? For sure, every child, just like every adult, has experienced increased stress and even what we might call anxiety at various times over the course of all this, because change does that to human beings, right? The, the, what anxiety is, is all about uncertainty and how much uncertainty we're experiencing and what we see as our capacity to handle that uncertainty. So for sure, there has been increased stress and anxiety across the board. Um, and Many kids have adjusted well to that. They've got supportive family systems or other systems of support that have helped them. And and it's interesting because over the 16 months, we sort of adjusted to this and everybody's kind of settled in. And now I think what's surprising is kids and adults discovering that, oh, wait, things are going back to quote unquote normal. And now I'm having anxiety about that. Like if somebody had told us a year ago, well, actually, you're going to be in this for a while and then you're going to have difficulty adjusting to coming out of it. We would have thought that they were nuts, right? It's like, no, I'm not going to have trouble. But it's because the brain, the human brain is a pattern seeking machine. It's really good at seeking patterns. That's how we create a sense of certainty and stability for ourselves. And so at first, when everything changed last spring, um, there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of adjustment, but then the brain got used to it. We got used to the masks. We got used to the restrictions. We got used to kids being at home and not being at school. Kids got used to doing school on the computer. We got used to all of that. And so now the brain's like, oh, okay, this is good. Like we're feeling, and now it's like, oh, now we're changing again. And so it's going to take a little bit of time, you know, for that to happen, but it will happen. And, you know, I think to address specifically the issue that you raised about kids and masks, I know there have been 
a lot of concerns. And, and for good reason, it's an important thing to ask, especially if you have a young child, people being concerned of what does it do for my child's development to be around, you know, people where you can't see expressions. And Early on in the pandemic, I started to get asked that question a lot um, on podcasts, on TV, you know, that I was doing. And so I delved into a bit of the research around that. And probably um, the the most uh, reliable data that we have that we can look at to say that this is going to be okay for kids is in cultures where masking is common, whether that is certain, um, you know, cultures in Asia where they have just done more masking for medical or health reasons, or we look culturally at certain places in the Middle East, for example, where mm-hmm. masking is part of their religious and cultural, um, you know, traditions. And what we find is that kids, um, infants, toddlers, you know, young children still do develop appropriate nonverbal communication, appropriate reading and expression, because they're not always around people who are masked. They're also with people in their home environment who are not masked. And I think that's the key for parents of little ones to hold on to is your children have been exposed to all of the normal breadth and depth of nonverbal communication and relatedness within environments where they haven't had to be masked. And actually that's been most of the time. Would there be a concern for a newborn? who literally their only exposure to human beings was not being able to see their face, absolutely, that would be very problematic. But we know that that's not the case. And in fact, parents, primary caregivers are the most important relationship for children through the preschool years. And so what's going on in homes, even if your young ones have not had contact with people outside of the immediate family or even outside of their primary parent, they're going to be okay because they've had that good, rich communication and relationship exposure and engagement. So I hope that that's helpful to people who have been concerned about that and kind of puts them at ease. Yeah. As someone who, I mean, different areas in the Middle East Mm -hmm. obviously have different like ways that they go about Mm -hmm covering their face Mm -hmm. and their hair and I'm Persian. So Mm -hmm. I have spent time in Iran, but in those, in a lot of those places, children don't partake Mm -hmm. until they're a certain age. Yeah. So it is interesting to me. And I just personally, like I, I feel, and I think that you've obviously talked to so many people. I'm sure some people just feel like they're being muzzled, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm just curious, like, mm-hmm. because like we're asking kids that are two years old mm-hmm. to be wearing these and, and luckily, I mean, my son, like he doesn't wear it, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to be in any yeah. situation where he wears it. So I don't see an, a mm-hmm. situation with him ever, unless like we um, are on an airplane or something, sure. but, and that's very rare, mm-hmm. but for children who go to school and they're masked and they're two years old and they're wearing it all the time. I'm just curious. Um, yeah, I'm just curious. Have you seen a difference in that? Yeah, they've actually done really well. Here's the interesting thing about kids, especially younger kids. They pick up on what the adults perspective is how the adults are handling and feeling about things and they they go in accordance with that so Mm -hmm. if if they look around and the people around them the adults and the other kids seem to be pretty okay with it and like nobody's 
you know, petrified of it or freaking out about them. They don't freak out about it either. And they just kind of do it. Right. So I've said to parents from the beginning, how they approach this makes a big difference. And I've said to parents, regardless of your beliefs about it, your frustrations, whatever, if you're going to put your child in environments where it's going to be required, you need to keep that stuff to yourself and model for them just calm, casual acceptance of this, because that's going to help them be able to do that. And if you really are passionate about it and believe this is a horrible thing, then you probably shouldn't be putting your kids in environments where they're going to be, you know, required to wear it. But what I've seen both in, you know, um, working with kids here at the clinic, but also in schools and daycare settings and all of that, they've done really well with it. Yes, it's a hassle, you know? I mean, God bless the kindergarten and first grade and preschool teachers who have had to seven thousand times a day, you know, tell kids, put your mask at times. But the reality is the kids have flowed with it. I think, you know, they've been fine. Um, we have a school right uh, near our clinic and I hear the kids outside at recess, you know, all year long, still having a great time, still figuring it out, doing it. So I think really th- the kids have done okay with it now. They're very glad, at least here where I live, um, you know, mandates are changing, things are shifting by the fall. You know, the expectation is that they won't be um, you know, needed full time anymore. And I think our, our kids certainly going to look forward to never having to bring those things to school or the playground or whatever again. Absolutely. And hopefully, um, we will be done with that as, as sort of a norm of how we have to operate. But I think it's a good thing to think about with children in general. Um, when there are new or uncertain things, whether it's masks or anything else, it's a good thing for parents to remember that how we approach it makes a huge difference in how they approach it. If we approach a situation with a ton of fear and anxiety and distress or anger or whatever it might be, they're going to respond in the same way because that's normal. That's what they're supposed to do. They look to the adults in their life to go, what should I be thinking about this? How should I be acting about this? And so I think that's one of the challenges as a parent in general in life is to realize what little sponges they are and to realize that one of the first and most foundational rules of parenting is for us to be able to manage our own thoughts and feelings and behaviors in order for them to learn how to do the same. I, yeah, I completely agree. And that was my experience too. I mean, my son never wears his mask because he doesn't need to, but yeah. then on the airplane, I was like, Oh, I wonder how it'll go. But mm-hmm. I just, yeah, like we just made sure to stay calm and, and it wasn't that big of a deal. And you hear all these stories about people getting kicked off. But again, I do think it goes back to, um, just what we're feeling inside, mm-hmm. even if on the outside, we, think we've got it together. They That's just right. have this sixth sense. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I mean, I'm curious, like with my, do you see, cause I think you specifically, you specialize a lot in anxiety disorders, right? Or- anxiety. We, we see the whole spectrum of things at the clinic. I tend to these days do consultation with families of elementary through young adult age kids with more serious issues who are on a lot of medications who are not doing well and need a totally different treatment plan need some so that tends to be what I see now but yeah for years I mean my my clinic and I've specialized and we see a lot of anxiety and um, but we also see a lot of neurodevelopmental issues so kids with who end up with diagnoses or even if they're not diagnosed they have issues that we would call 
ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, you know, learning challenges, uh, child depression, those types of things. And, and with all of the stuff with kids, behavior is a piece of it, which is why, you know, I talk a lot about behavior because whether we're talking about anxiety or depression, or we're talking about ADHD or whatever else, behavior is the way that these things show up in kids because they don't have the sophisticated ways to communicate it. So people are often really surprised to find out in children, for example, anxiety can show up much the same way that ADHD does. Kids who are super anxious, especially young kids, can look very hyperactive and impulsive and chaotic. But there's a big difference between a kid who has ADHD and a kid who has anxiety. And that's where we have to be so vigilant about really digging into what's going on. Because if you just look at impulsivity and hyperactivity and behavior issues in a kid, every single kid you meet at some point is going to get diagnosed with ADHD or something like that. But it's these behaviors that that show up that we have to dig into because a kid doesn't have the ways to express or even be aware of, oh, I'm feeling anxious. A three-year-old doesn't even know what that is. And so, you know, being able to really look at those symptoms and really understand what's going on there is so important. So there's a difference essentially in the behavior of a child that has anxiety or ADHD than just it naturally showing up? Well, it's, you know, so we can have a kid who, let's say, is really impulsive and really hyperactive and struggling to focus in the classroom. And at home, the parents are like, oh my gosh, this kid's all over the place. They don't follow instructions. They're just super busy all the time. And we would look at that and go, oh, this kid's a behavior problem, or maybe, oh, you know, this kid must have ADHD. But it could be anxiety because that's the way that anxiety shows up in little kids. And it's not the way that it shows up in older children or adults. You don't see adults, you know, with anxiety exhibiting, you know, hyperactive, impulsive um, behavior, but that is how it shows up in kids. And that's why it's important to realize that these things can look different in children than they do in adults. Um, you know, sleep, issues are another one. As adults, we think about, you know, a sleep problem as, oh, well, I'm tired all the time. I'm fatigued all the time. I don't have any energy. Well, one of the primary ways that sleep problems show up in kids is in hyperactive sort of out of control behavior. It's it's the opposite for kids. And so it's important that that's why if you have a child and you're having struggles in whatever area it might be, or you're having concerns, it's important to be consulting with or working with someone who understands child development and understands how these things show up in kids, because kids are not just miniature adults. These things can look really different in children. Do you think that, or do you believe that anxiety is natural in, um, in people in general, in, in all stages, whether they're super young or older? Anxiety is a totally normal and needed and healthy um, feeling that we all have at times. Anxiety serves an important purpose. If no one was ever anxious, no one would ever get anything done, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of anxiety that is important and necessary for functioning, whether we're talking about kids or adults. When we start having that level of anxiety, though, get much higher 
then feels manageable on a regular basis, that's when we're looking more at somebody who's really struggling with anxiety or maybe having more of an anxiety disorder where they're not just having anxiety, let's say, you know, before a big test that's important to them or before they're, you know, going over to a friend's house for a sleepover for the first time. Those would be two examples with kids where totally normal to have some anxiety. Mm-hmm. But if if they're having anxiety about things that a person wouldn't typically feel anxious about, or if the level of anxiety is so off the charts that it's really making it difficult for them to do normal life activities, then that's when we would say, okay, we need to do some work here with this child um, around helping them to develop better coping tools, helping them to um, you know, have different ways of managing those thoughts and maybe even looking physiologically at what's going on there. Because I, I always, you know, again, this is more of the integrative or holistic approach. But if I see somebody who's really struggling with anxiety, I start thinking about, okay, what's going on with their physical health? What's going on with, um, you know, their nutrient levels? What's going on with their sleep? Are they getting movement? Because all of those things contribute to whether our anxiety is manageable or unmanageable. Um, So, you know, yes, I think everybody has some degree of anxiety some of the time, and that's important. But when it gets really out of balance or out of control, then it's something that we really need to, um, to address. When we talk about tackling climate change, we tend to focus on transportation, food, and energy. But as I've said before, what we wear is just as important. And it all starts with the fibers. 65% of clothes are made from plastics derived from fossil fuels, and 80% end up in landfills or incinerators. It takes nearly 350 million barrels of oil a year to meet demand for plastic-based fibers. And when those clothes are washed or discarded, the damage is even worse polyester, nylon, and acrylic clothes are responsible for between a quarter and a third of all microplastics in the ocean. Fortunately, there's a solution and it's natural fibers. If we reduce our dependence on plastic fibers, we can meaningfully lower the industry's carbon footprint. So today I'd like to talk a little bit about Alex Crane, a brand that makes beautiful clothes exclusively from natural fibers. Most of Alex Crane's clothes are made of linen, an incredible natural material made from flax. Flax grows without irrigation or fertilizer. It needs only sun and rain. Flax actually improves the land. One hectare absorbs almost four tons of CO2 per year and adds nutrients back into the soil. And once woven into fabric, Linen has amazing natural properties. It's heat regulating, antimicrobial, it doesn't hold odor, and it dries super fast. All perfect qualities for these hot summer days. For all its benefits, linen accounts for only 1% of global apparel production. And Alex Crane is out here to change that. They offer shorts, shirts, tees, pants, and jackets all made from the highest quality French flax dyed in perfect colors, and washed in a special blend of biodegradable softeners. The result is supremely soft and breezy clothes with perfect body and drape. So if you're looking for summer-ready, breezy clothes and also want to push the apparel industry in the right direction, shop Alex Crane 
and use code THEFULLEST at checkout, all one word uppercase, for 15% off your order. And you mentioned you work with a lot of people who may have been on the traditional route where they've been prescribed a lot of different pharmaceuticals and it's still not working for them. (laughs) So I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about your approach and how you would start to work with someone in that way. Because I think as a society, there is so much to unpack. Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, depending on at what age you're seeing someone, there are layers and layers of different stressors and trauma and experiences that people have had in their lives. And whether it's like active trauma, you know, Mm -hmm. things that are still going on or that experience is still happening in their life or past stuff. I think it's so much easier for us to just take a pill than Mm -hmm. it is to like work through that. But I also, I don't want to shame anyone who has chosen that route. I just personally through people in my family and just things that I've experienced and haven't been in this industry, it's just more and more and more. I just hear like that still wasn't working for me. You know, maybe it was Mm -hmm. just a stepping stone, but it doesn't solve. I, I just hear like, it doesn't really solve the core issue. So I'm so curious what your approach is when you um, start to see a patient who, I mean, I like my sister at one point was like on 13 different pharmaceuticals, you know, and she doesn't take any right now. Mm -hmm. And she would had like different disorders. And I would say that like, once she started working with a functional medicine doctor and really addressing her nutritional needs and things like that, like she's so much more balanced now. And so just like firsthand experiences like that, I'm always just so curious. Um, Mm -hmm you know, what you do as a physician, because I think at the same time, I, I, I know that there isn't that much information out there for, for people who are such as yourself, who are looking to kind of reverse that and like take a different route. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so several things to say about that. The first thing that I'll say is that there is no shame in any approach that anyone takes to anything. I I believe that everyone is doing the absolute best they can with the information they have at the time, right? And so I am not anti-psychiatric medication. I do firmly believe that they are overprescribed and overused and that unfortunately, people are put on them without anyone looking at what's really going on with the person and why they're having symptoms. And people aren't given all of the information about options for treatment. People aren't given adequate information about the potential benefits as well as the potential risks of these medications. So I think we need to do a much, much better job in the fields of medicine and mental health of number one, when a person presents with symptoms, really digging in and understanding what's going on at the root of that. And if we are going to put medication on the table as an option, doing a much better job of educating people about what all of their options are for treatment and what the potential benefits and risks of all of those things are. And that's what I'm committed to is people being able to make informed choices. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people who 
seek help for mental health issues are not given the benefit of informed choice. They're not told, you know, that there are a lot of things that might be going on underneath their symptoms that could be looked at. They're not given the full range of options. It's very rare. Like a great example is um, exercise, which I know is a dirty word to some people. I like to call it movement because exercise like brings up all mm-hmm. kinds of like bad thoughts in people's mind. Yeah. But, but movement or exercise is a great example. We have so many scientific research studies showing that consistent, moderate levels of exercise outperform the vast majority of medications that get prescribed for things like anxiety, depression, mood disorders, those kinds of things. And yet it is so rare that I see a patient who at any point in the course of their seeking out treatment for the symptoms they were having was told that, hey, exercise or physical movement would be a great thing for you to do. Here's what the research says. Here's what I would recommend. So people aren't even being given the option of saying yes or no to something like exercise. And when I say that to patients, they go, well, why didn't anybody tell me that? You know, (laughs) yeah, I would have gotten my kid moving more or yes, I would have preferred to do that than end up on, you know, the plan that I've been on. So exercise is a great example, but nutrition is another great example. We have lots of studies now connecting many different aspects of nutrition status, nutrient status, digestion, microbiome health, all of these things to mental health and developmental symptoms in kids and adults. And yet, almost never do I see a patient who in the course of all the people that they have seen for help with their issues have been told that the food that they're eating might be something worth looking at or thinking about, or even getting some basic, basic blood work to look at things like their iron level or their vitamin D level, things that we know make a profound difference in how people's brains function and how they feel and function in their lives. So my concern about medication is that we jump to it without actually addressing the issues that are going on. And so, for example, if somebody is, you know, I'll use an example of a child just because I treat lots of kids. If a child is having severe ADHD symptoms and they're hyperactive and they're even restless in their sleep and they're not getting a good night's sleep and they're chaotic during the day and they can't focus and somebody just puts them on a stimulant, okay, that may help, might help with some of those things. But If the real issue is that they're iron deficient, which happens in a lot of those kinds of kids, that stimulant medication is going to do nothing to address the fact that they are iron deficient or anemic. And so we have completely overlooked one of the root causes of that. And we've put a Band-Aid on with the Ritalin or, you know, whatever medications being used, but we haven't identified or addressed the real fundamental problem. That's a very simple example of that. But I see that even in teens and adults with, um, you know, anxiety. Had a patient in here last week with all the classic symptoms of panic disorder, of severe anxiety, took her medical history, took her history. Because as a psychologist, I don't prescribe medications. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't do any prescribing, but I do work closely with people's uh, prescribers to put together plans, particularly when we're talking about helping people, um, you know, get off these medications. So I work with my colleagues in the prescribing community to do that. And I took a, a lengthy history 
from this patient. And I said, we need to order some blood work here because it sounds like you may have um, some nutrient deficiencies. Order just a basic panel of blood work through her primary care physician. And lo and behold, she was quite deficient in B12. Well, when a person is deficient in vitamin B12, how does that show up? Um, shows up in lots of physical symptoms, but it also shows up in lots of neurological and mental health symptoms with just not having energy, with having anxiety and panic, um, with really struggling uh, with those things. And so again, this is somebody who had been put on a lot of antidepressant medications and psychiatric drugs, and it wasn't working. And when we look in the big picture and look at what's going on in the body that's connected to that, here we find a B12 deficiency that no amount of Prozac or Abilify or any other psychiatric drug is going to fix that nutrient deficiency. So what we needed to do was talk about diet and get her immediately on a therapeutic dose of B12, and then her symptoms improve. So this is these are just some simple examples of how important it is that when a child or an adult is having symptoms, that we are really taking the time to look at what is going on there and what are all the pieces that we need to be addressing, as opposed to just rushing to a medication that may or may not work, because unfortunately, the track record for these drugs is not great. Um, we have a pretty poor track record over the long term for most of these medications. Many people do not improve on them, or they may improve in the short term, but in the long term, they don't get better. And the bigger concern is that they all carry with them a pretty significant risk of side effects. There are reasons why many people don't like to stay on these drugs, because while it may help in one area, it can cause a lot of problems in other areas. And so there's a lot of things that we need to weigh when we're looking at whether somebody would benefit from these and whether the benefits outweigh the risks. And my concern is that we don't spend nearly enough time looking at the whole person and understanding what's actually going on and putting together a treatment plan that can actually help the root issues. I love everything you just said, and I completely agree with you. And my question for you is, why, do you, why is it so controversial to say, like, we don't need all these pharmaceuticals, you know? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. And I think really, I mean, I think there's several things. Um, it, one of the big things is, at least in the United States and in most, you know, what we would call Western um, countries, but per particularly in the United States, our medical and mental health systems are run by pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. That's just the bottom line. You follow mm -hmm. the money with it. And this is not unique to mental health. This goes on everywhere in the field of, of medicine and healthcare. So when we look at the insurance company side, they are very invested in practitioners spending the least amount of time possible with people and prescribing treatments that require the least cost, right? That's what insurance companies want to approve. And when we're talking about doing an intake session, for example, with a patient, child or adult with mental health issues, let's say, I spend 75 minutes at that first appointment uh, doing observations, taking a thorough history, going through you know, previous things that have been done. Well, insurance companies in a primary healthcare setting, they only want to reimburse the, the pediatrician, you know, for a 10 minute 
office visit, maybe a 20 minute office visit if there's really, you know, some codes that they can use for that. Well, there's not a lot that can be done in that period of time. So we have the insurance companies running that piece of it. And then we have the pharmaceutical companies that have done an excellent job over the last, you know, 50, 60 years of marketing their product to people within medicine and mental health and really taking over a lot of the training that um, physicians, that psychologists, that people in these fields have been given. And so it's become sort of the traditional treatment route now, especially in mental health. Well, we prescribe some, um, you know, psychosocial therapy, some counseling, um, and then we prescribe medications. That's just what we do. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's the mainstream narrative. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people in medicine and mental health who are interested in and curious about doing things differently, mainly because when you practice for any length of time, you begin to see pretty quickly that these traditional ways of doing things don't work real well. Yeah. And that patients continue to show up month after month, year after year with the same problems and all that is being thrown back at them as well, do some more counseling and here's some more medication. And so I have a lot of colleagues in medicine and mental health who are going, you know, we know this doesn't really work, but they don't know what to do instead. They don't know what they don't know. And so that's one of the things I'm really invested in is, you know, continuing to do training and professional development for people, for professionals in these fields to help them learn these things that they weren't taught. I wasn't taught these things in my training programs. I had to go on and get additional master's degree, additional training, additional certifications in order to understand and incorporate these things. And so I'm passionate about bringing this information to my colleagues in medicine and mental health, because I do think that a lot of them, once they know some different ways of thinking about and addressing these things, they're willing to do it. Now, whether they work in an environment that allows for that is a different story, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because many of them, especially if they work in hospital systems or, um, you know, those types of things that they don't have a lot of leeway in terms of how they address this. But I find that most um, of my colleagues in medicine are open to collaborating with me. When I say, hey, I saw your patient today. Here's what I you know, am concerned about is going on. Can we work together? Let's order some lab work. Let's look at some different things. And they're very open to that. And they just say, you know, I, that's not information I have. I don't know how to do that, but I'm happy to, to work with you to, to figure it out, you know, to, to take your guidance on it. And so I just think we need to be getting this message out there more. And for sure, we need more mental health practitioners who understand these brain-body connections um, because it's really damaging to patients over time, especially if they have chronic symptoms and they're doing all the things they've been told to do and they're not getting better Um, There's sort of this idea then that they get, and sometimes they're directly told by practitioners, like, well, there's just something wrong with you. Like you're not doing enough, or this is just a problem you're going to have for the rest of your life. And talk about, you know, making a person depressed and anxious, right? Yeah. Um, And so I think a lot of people just get this message that I'm just totally broken or my child's totally broken and there's nothing that can be done and nothing could be further from the truth. But I think, unfortunately, that's the message that we send. Well, you did some counseling. You've been on the meds. You're not better. This is just going to be something. This is just the way you are. And, um, And I think that's really unfortunate because it's not true. 
Um, and so that's why I always encourage people, whether it's parents with their children or adults for themselves, to continue to seek out information and avenues and people who can have a different perspective and can help you dig into that more. Because in my experience, there are always answers if we look hard enough and work through the process and really, um, you know, get to know a person and, and really address what's going on there. There's always the hope that they can improve. And I think hope is something that um, is therapeutic in and of itself. And, and we need to be constantly cultivating hope in people that they can get better. I completely agree. As a parent myself uh, to a toddler, I am curious because about um, things like homelessness, addiction, and, you know, I mean, it's not like things I worry about, but I just, you know, you go out in the world and you see how mental health and brain health issues and challenges have affected people and what the result of it is in our society. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned, you know, coping skills or like just different ways that what are some ways that parents can support their children from a young age mm-hmm. where we can, you know, help uh, the, our next generation and hopefully keep them from getting into drugs and getting into situations where, um, you know, just practicing preventative care from an early, early age? It's a, it's a beautiful question. And I think, you know, again, when we look at things like addiction, when we look at why people end up on a path of substance use, of, um, you know, addiction in all sorts of ways, it doesn't have to just be substances, right? When we look at all of those things, um, it's people trying to cope the best they can. And so we look at all of those things. I look at all of those things with a huge amount of empathy, realizing that these are just the ways that individuals have grown to try to manage their uncomfortable feelings. And so one of the one of the big things we need to be doing as parents um, proactively when it comes to helping our kids to have the skills and the internal resources to be resilient and to manage the challenges of life is we need to be aware of and managing our own challenges. So that's number one. One of the best things that parents can do for their kids is to get support and build their own skills and and even get treatment for themselves if if we are struggling with things. So that's that's the first most important thing because mm-hmm. everything that's going on with us impacts our kids. So if I'm working with a mom who has out of control anxiety that is really distressing, that's showing up everywhere in her life, including her parenting. One of the best things she can do for her child and her child to develop better resilience and coping is for her to get support and help and skills herself. So that's number one. Number two, I think, is really how we approach our, how we think about and and how we respond to kids' emotions and behaviors. Many of us, you know, I don't know about you, Nikki, but me, you know, I was raised in a wonderful, loving family. My parents, um, you know, my mom would look back now and say, there's a lot of things I would do differently, right? I think that's for Mm -hmm. all of us as parents, you do the best you can at the time. But, you know, they're often, you know, those of us who are now, you know, parenting, we were raised 
Um, there were punishments. There were, uh, you know, not a lot of feeling, talk about feelings going on. It was sort of like, oh, if you're having a hard time, just buck up and handle it. Um, yeah. You know, some people were raised in environments where it was like it was not okay to have any emotion other than happy. You had to pretend you were happy all the time to, you know, make sure that. Uh, nobody else knew that there were problems going on. Some people were raised in families where physical punishments, you know, and abuse were used, um, you know, to manage kids. So, so that history, you know, impacts how we parent our kids. And one of the best things we can do for this next generation of kids is to handle and respond to their emotions and behaviors in more um, effective ways. And so when a child is having an uncomfortable feeling, maybe they are really mad that the crackers that they love to have for snack every day are out and they're not available today, or yeah. they're really disappointed about not being able to go you know, on vacation this summer, or they're really embarrassed because they fell on their bike in front of a bunch of kids, whatever it might be, all those uncomfortable feelings, hurt, disappointment, anger, frustration, embarrassment, shame, all of those things, how we respond to those things as parents helps them develop a healthy way of how to understand and deal with those emotions within themselves. So when we empathize with them right out of the gate, instead of saying, oh, don't be upset about that, or, oh, don't worry, it's not a big deal, or, oh, you don't need to be scared of that, or, you know, what are you crying about? That's not something to cry about, you know, those kinds of things. We shut that down, and what we teach them is those feelings are not okay. Avoid mm -hmm. those feelings at all costs. Well, then that shows up later on as kids who end up in codependent relationships or kids who end up, you know, using substances or whatever to avoid those feelings. Instead, what we want to do is embrace those feelings and say, oh, I know it is so, so disappointing that I don't have those crackers for you. You're feeling so sad about that. I know, you know, you wanted them and I don't have them. And, you know, oh, I, you're just feeling so disappointed about that. And let them have their feelings and stay there with them, empathize with it. Now, we do need to set boundaries around what their behavior might be with those. You know, I say, all feelings are welcome, all behaviors are not. It is completely fine for you to feel sad and disappointed and cry about the crackers. It is not okay to hit me because of it, right? So we have yeah. to set boundaries, but we need to empathize and acknowledge and let them know, of course, you're feeling that way and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then stay with them. You know, none of this sending them off to, you know, well, if you're going to cry about it, go somewhere else and cry. You know, yeah. or even well-intended timeouts, which sometimes timeout can be helpful if it's used to truly give parents and kids a break from each other because they're both getting each other all spun up some time mm -hmm. apart. But typically timeout is used in a punitive sense of, you know, you are upset and you're making this difficult for everybody else. So you go to your room until you can get yourself together and then you can come out. Well, mm. instead, what we want to do is really stay with us. Say, oh, you're so disappointed. You're so sad. I get it. You're, you know, go. it's okay to cry. And I'm, I'm going to stay here with you. And, you know, you stay with them. You help them to get themselves back together. And then you move on and say, let's pick a snack. Or maybe we just won't do snack or whatever. You just move on with what it's going to be. And what they learn then is my feelings are okay. They're healthy. They're normal. I don't need to be scared of them. I don't need to avoid them. They don't upset other people. My mom or my dad or my teacher or whoever can handle my big feelings, even when I feel like I can't. And it builds trust. 
And it also allows them to see that they come down on the other side of those big feelings and they can move on. And that helps them develop a sense of resilience. One of the biggest problems that happens in kids and adults developing maladaptive coping strategies and behaviors is, is a desire to avoid any uncomfortable feeling. And so if we can help kids from an early age to recognize that those uncomfortable feelings are normal, healthy, important part of life, and we don't need to be afraid of them, and we can handle them, and the people around us can handle them, and we come down on the other side, and we are okay again, and we move along, that is an incredibly important gift to give our kids. It makes so much sense because it, like you said, instead of teaching them to shut down their emotions, to repress it, and that it's not okay to feel feelings. I mean, it's like being in a relationship with someone and saying like, I need you to communicate more with me, articulate your feelings more, but their whole life, they've been shut down. That's right. How they felt. And so, yeah, early on, just, I mean, it's so much easier. I mean, I, t- I completely believe in it. And I, I like to follow, um, like Janet's blog and mm-hmm. her podcast and stuff, but man, is it hard? Like it, it is, is, it so is hard. It's so hard. And here's why, here's why it's hard, Nikki, because when our kids are having uncomfortable feelings, we have uncomfortable feelings. It's hard yeah. for us as a parent to see our child sitting with something uncomfortable, right? We want to fix it. We want it to go away. Their discomfort triggers our discomfort. And so a lot of our reaction to our kids is really about us trying to soothe ourselves, right? Oh, don't worry about that. Oh, don't cry about that. You know, go in your room and get settled down. And we want them to stop feeling that because we're trying to protect ourselves from the discomfort that we're feeling. And that's why this practice of handling our stuff first is so important. I need to be able to recognize and understand and handle my uncomfortable feelings if I'm going to help my kid be able to do that. And there's just no way, uh, there's no way around it. It's a, it's a, you know, more work on our part for sure, but that's why it's hard. And you're so right. It is hard. Which is why parents will say to me in the clinic all the time, they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, I watched you handle that thing with my kid and it looked so easy. And I say, well, it is easier for me because they're not my child. Yeah. You're not attached. I'm not, I'm not experiencing the same internal feelings about their emotions or outbursts or behavior because they're not triggering me in that way. They're not my child. So of course it's easier for me. And I just think, to recognize that. Yeah. And I think I, what I've experienced is I think the most difficult thing for me is when I find myself like disappointed in the way that my son reacts to something. Right. So like, um, right now we're going through a stage where he's like spitting at us or Mm -hmm. saying, um, yucky no, and then spitting. And it's like his way of saying, just simply saying, no, I don't, I don't want to do that or Mm -hmm. something, but that's his way of showing it. Mm -hmm. And then also he's hitting. And so, it's really like at first when I, because I'm like, you're my little angel. (laughs) Where is this coming from? We don't even watch TV, but you know, like whatever he's learning, whatever in the play group. And then I'm like, I don't want him to go to the play group because I don't want him to learn this from other kids. But then I'm like, well, that's just like trying to like close him off from society. And this is part of like life. That's right. 
also he's expressing his emotions and it's okay. Mm -hmm. But like, I think my initial reaction is always like, oh my gosh, like I can, I truly cannot believe that he is doing this. I, mm-hmm. you know, you just have this like idea that they would never do your child <laughs> right. never do that because your child is perfect, you know? Yeah. And so I think for me, it's like, I don't even know how to react in that situation because, um, and I think specifically with those, and it's like considered aggressive behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. and so it's like, well, you don't want to sweep it under the rug. You need to address it. You need to set your boundaries that it's not okay to do that. But then you also don't want to react. Yep. You know, and I think it becomes so challenging. And and then you wonder, well, what is it that I can work on? Right. I mean, and I'm wondering, definitely let me know. Well, <laughs> so, you know, the, the biggest thing there, there's a couple of things I think are helpful. The first is to remember that these are totally normal stages of development. It is the job of a toddler to test the limits and boundaries. When little kids are testing like that, they're supposed to do that. They're figuring out where are the boundaries here? How far can I go? What is appropriate, not appropriate? How much um, can the adults around me handle what's going on with me? How much can I trust them for that, right? So this is the job of a toddler. I actually get concerned if people tell me that, you know, oh, my kid's five now. We never went through, you know, any kind of stage of testing like that. I'm like, ooh, that's actually concerning because that's a normal, healthy part of development. Now, where that can start to get a little stuck is if we respond to it in ways that don't help the child get a sense of the boundaries and what's appropriate and, you know, our emotions are getting tangled up in it and then they keep doing it because they're, you know, confused and and feeling out of control. So recognizing that it's healthy and appropriate and that it's not unique to, you know, your specific child or anyone's particular child. It's like, oh, this is what kids do at this stage. And of course they do. You know, they're not little adults, we have a fully functioning frontal lobe that allows us to regulate and manage, you know, our, our feelings and our impulses. They don't. And so, you know, they feel, uh, upset about something and boom, you know, it's like, here's this big reaction to it. And they're, they're learning how to regulate that. So I think that's the first thing is recognizing that it's normal. And the second thing is that the, again, the most important thing for us to work on there is staying calm, but steady. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a calm, but firm, and you can do both at the same time. A lot of people, when I say it's important to stay calm, they equate that with, you know, sort of letting kids get away with things or not having boundaries. No, no. Calm is just, I can keep my voice steady. I can keep my emotions in check. I am not getting escalated and flying off the handle or, you know, getting really upset and anxious. I'm staying really calm and steady, but I'm also staying firm you know, oh, you're really mad, um, you know, that I'm serving broccoli. You, you said you don't like this broccoli. You're upset about that. That is okay. And at the same time, I am now removing the plate and the broccoli. And if I need to, I am turning him around so that he cannot spit at me. And I'm saying, it's okay. You're upset about the broccoli. That's fine. You don't like it. Um, and it's not okay to spit at me, or I'm going to help you so that you aren't going to, you know, get spit on me or whatever it might be, or I'm going to help you um, because I'm not going to allow you to hurt somebody. And, you know, with a young child, then you kind of scoop them up and you take them by the hands and you are proactively intervening in a calm, but firm way. You're upset. I see that I get it. And I'm not going to let you hurt somebody. 
And you're putting a container then around them to help uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. Or they say, you know, I don't, I don't want to leave the pool or, you know, whatever. I don't, mm-hmm. don't want to leave. And you say, I know that's really hard. You know, you're upset about having to leave the pool. And while I'm being calm and steady with that, I'm getting right by my child. I am taking them by the hand and I am helping them move away from the pool. I know it's time to go. That's really hard. And so I'm staying calm and firm and steady, but also continuing to set the boundary of we are moving away from the pool and I'll pick you up if I need to and move you along. So it's that calm and firm at the same time. Kids need boundaries. Being a, you know, there's terms thrown around for this, whether it's respectful parenting, gentle parenting, conscious parenting, positive parenting, I don't know, a million terms for it. People have the misunderstanding that that means you don't have boundaries or you just let kids do whatever. Nothing is further from the truth. It's just, we're not using punishment, shame, uh, you know, excessive discipline as the way that we're trying to get kids to be compliant. It's a more developmentally appropriate attuned to their emotions, helping them develop the resilience and the coping skills that they need to manage life versus just trying to force them to be compliant. To me, that's the difference. But it really is about that empathy with firm boundaries. Kids need both of those things. Yeah. Okay. I have one more for you. Sure. Um, I just remembered my son does this, not as much as he used to, but he'll do it. And I think it's such a great, I mean, response on his part. Like, it's so (laughs) smart for him because I literally am dumbfounded and don't know what to say. (laughs) Like, if I try and talk through something with him Mm -hmm. and he doesn't want to, and my, he's two and a half, like he's turning Mm -hmm. three in August, but he says, um, oh, I don't, uh, that hurts my ears. I don't Mm -hmm. like that. And I'm yeah, like, well, yeah. I need to talk to you still. Right. So, and you just say, oh, it hurts your... See, now I, I would respond to that with a bit of humor, actually. First, depends on the personality of the child. But for most almost three-year-olds, I would say, oh, that's hurting your ears. And I would get a yeah. really quiet, like whisper. And I would almost like pretend to just be mouthing and not saying the words. Because what is a little kid going to do then? They're like, oh, what are you saying? Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I would almost turn that into some humor. Um, If it was a kid who their personality is not one that that kind of humor, you know, works with, I would say, oh, I think what you're saying is this is kind of uncomfortable to talk about or, Mm. oh, you might be feeling embarrassed and you don't want to talk about this or talking about this right now is making you more angry or whatever you think is happening. And then I would say, okay, we'll take a break. And I would circle back to it another time because sometimes in actually a lot of the time in the moment is not the time to be trying to discuss it or teach a lesson. We just get, yeah, we get through whatever the moment is Mm -hmm. and we just, we let them express what they need to express. We stay calm and firm. We come out on the other side and we just move along with our business. And Mm -hmm. then later on, maybe it's, you know, 15 minutes later, maybe it's three hours later, maybe it's the next day depending on the age of the child, we circle back around and say, oh yeah, you know, that was a really, that was a really tough thing leaving the pool yesterday. I was thinking about that, 
you know, I want to, I want to think about a way that we could do that differently next time. But you come back around to it well apart from the situation, because when you try to do the teaching or the problem solving too close to the big feelings of Mm -hmm. the situation, they can't process it. None of us can really, but especially Mm -hmm. for kids, they're still processing the emotions and all of that. And we need to just kind of let all that soothe, go along our way, act like it didn't happen, and then circle back around to it at another time. So hopefully that's helpful. Oh my gosh, such great advice. I love it. (laughs) I feel like I could talk to you forever. I really (laughs) appreciate you coming on and sharing with us everything. And and I, I really love your approach to all of this. And I, and I hope for more holistic child psychologists and just psychologists in general, because I think that's really what we're missing in our society is that. And that's the number one thing that I've really realized in being in this like world wellness world in general, it it really all goes back to me. Number one is mental well-being. That's right. Well, I appreciate you helping to spread the word and having me on and having this great conversation. And, you know, there's tons of resources and things available on my website. If anybody is like, oh, I want to learn more about that or, you know, watch more videos or get more resources or whatever, you know, lots of stuff there and on social media for people to access. I'm always happy to be a resource for people. Awesome. Thank you. And do you see people virtually as well right now? Yes, we do. And we've always actually seen people virtually. My office, uh, my practice has always consulted with people around the world. And so um, we've had telehealth and teleconsultation for a long time. So yes, um, if there's people in in need of more direct support, they can absolutely, um, you know, reach out and we have options for that. So. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Birkins. We're so happy to have you and, and hopefully we'll be chatting with you again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care.